Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we inspire leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. We're very excited about our guest here, Esther Weinberg. She is the founder and chief leadership development officer of the Ready Zone, and she equips high-level executives to build sustainable and profitable company cultures based on a foundation of respect, safety, and trust. She's also contributed to Forbes and has held executive positions at Disney and Fox. Esther, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Carl. This is great. I'm excited to be here. I know we talked recently, and I'm really excited about our conversation. Absolutely. No, we had a really fun like prep call. I, I, did. I Yeah. So people who don't know who have been listening to the show or not, I don't just let anybody on. There's a, there's a prep process. You got to be like a super high performer, high achiever. And, and then we have this prep conversation ahead of time to like discuss. And we just hit it off like right away. It was like, oh my gosh, you have so many amazing skills and, and, and a lot of amazing things you're doing in the world. And it's like, we need to share this. So more people can learn about what you do, share about it. So let's talk about in detail. Tell us about your company and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? You, you know, it's an interesting thing because lots of people can relate to this. Everything today feels like you're drinking out of a fire hose or I grew up in Brooklyn. So you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's every leader I know just wants to feel ready to take on all the opportunities and challenges at their feet. The real question today is how, especially when we're wrestling with so many things. And so at the ready zone, what we do is we go into organizations and help them create workplace cultures of trust, respect, and psychological safety. That's not just valued because probably no one would argue with that, but it's as measured as the bottom line. And so we've created a, a framework, a leadership framework with six indicators to really see whether or not you as an executive is doing this, you are, is your team doing it and is your organization doing it? And I find that it's handy when people have an easier way to speak about what's happening for themselves, their team and their organization. So that's primarily what we do on an ongoing basis. So as you, let's talk a little bit more about these stages, these different areas, these indicators, because what I love what you talked about is the measurement side, Mm -hmm. right? uh, So many people will talk about, hey, I want a great place to work. Yeah. Well, congratulations. (laughs) It's like, congratulations. Who doesn't want a great place to work? And if you don't want a great place to work, it's probably not a good idea to be in business, you know, if that makes sense, you know, maybe work for somebody else where you can make it a bad place to work. You know, in terms of it, from your perspective, you have these measures. What, tell us about, you know, a few of these measures that you have and how you can help show accountability to actually get to this new state where you are creating something that is is accomplishing what we're trying to do. Yeah. So the six, what we call zone performance indicators, they're, it's, it's common vernacular, but not common. So what I mean by that, I'll go through them very quickly is, and they're not in any order. So I wanna be clear about that. So remember it's a diagnostic framework. So action 
So action ready is all around, I call it the foundation of the house, meaning it's around your emotional agility. It deals with the observer that you are and how you see the world. Because in the old days, we looked at performances, take certain actions, lead to certain results, but we never actually deal with the person who sees. And so unless we deal with that, we actually can't really shift significantly the results. So that I call the foundation of the house. Influence ready is all around how you're building sustainable, how you're building visibility and alignment while building sustainable relationships. You know, influenceability is really the leadership currency inside of organization these days. Connect ready is all around how you're fostering consistency and communication, feedback, engaging in tough conversations, taking responsibility for the impact of your communication being your word. Culture ready is building an organization based on coaching and mentoring. Just imagine if you were in your organization and every single person was invested in coaching and mentoring each other. Impact ready is growing and developing powerful teams. And pivot ready, I know that's an, a bit of an overused word, but I would say that it's all around how do you cultivate master change and cultivate change inside of your organization, cultivate that level of resilience, because we are not big proponents of the belief of change management as a practice anymore because we think everything has changed. And so how do you actually build that into how people are operating, what their behaviors are, what are the behaviors that are important for that? So that is the framework to which we operate in as the six zones. So we, we can make an argument the past three years have been the most dynamic workplace scenarios from... COVID, right? Work, work, first of all, being forced to work at home in some situations, then where who never were, Mm -hmm. then you have, I'll just call it the cultural awareness, so to speak, you know, that has been taking place has been significant from the Me Too movement to just different dynamics that are in the workplace that are very real today. Yes. And especially with some of the larger companies, this is top of mind, right? Right. So what has been, let's just, let's talk about the virtual work life. Yeah. We're on Zoom right now going through this. Okay. It's very different than being in person, even though it's close. Right. It's not quite the same. And especially if you have remote teams that are all throughout now because they haven't gone back to work, they're still working out of their house. What has been you've seen as the biggest challenge of creating teams and building these cultures when people are separate, you know, and, and there's this battle of whether I should go into the office or go and not go in the office. Well, I I think that we have to take it back to the studs, which I mean by that is I think that what we forgot is that culture is actually portable. And so when we went remote in 2020, what I think you started seeing was how portable our cultures. And so there was a variety of success and not success or seeing the warts and all within the culture to which you're creating. And so You can create an environment where you had dry cleaning and ping pong tables and free food. And then all of a sudden you had had the start of a pandemic where everyone goes home and it's like, well, we don't have the ping pong pong tables. We don't have the free food. We don't have the dry cleaning. And so now what, right now, how do we measure our culture? So when I say go down to the studs is that then you had to really get down to things that people called soft skills, which are not soft skills. They're not, they're actually hard, measurable, and financially measurable at a, at a very granular level, which we, we can talk about in a moment. And so what you saw was things like 
people actually asking, executives actually asking their people, how are they doing? What are the what are the elements of their life that's impacting their work? And how can they actually help them with their mental well-being and have them do work on it in a different way? Well, that was lovely for probably the first six months of COVID. And then and then what I saw was people were like, well, I can't talk to you about how you're feeling about something. We just got to get stuff done. I mean, like, I'm going to talk to you about your feelings. I'm not a therapist. And I remember I would say to executives, okay, you're not a therapist, but you're a human. And it doesn't take long to just ask someone how they're doing, but you actually need to listen and you don't need to solve anything. You just need to listen and be in a human experience with someone because you want them to be here. It's kind of like the old adage that I had a, a senior executive in marketing who said to me a few months ago, she said, you know, we're trying to figure out the hybrid work model inside of our company. I said, well, what are you thinking about? She's like, we're thinking about three days in the office, two days flexible. Okay, it's very common problem. So what kind of conversations are you and senior leadership having? She's a senior executive. And she said, well, we keep going around and around. We don't have an answer to how we're going to do this. What does it look like? What are our expectations? And so I said, well, maybe the conversation is not about how we get people into the prison of a work space, but maybe we talk about what is the environment that we want to create to which people we want actually people to exist in. So if you think about it, you know, let's, let's just take a small thing. Let's just take a small thing because you're talking about the tangibility of things, right? Like human interact communication. Often, you know that one of the biggest things that happens during changing times is that people often complain that 75% of change fails and a lot of it's because of bad communication. Okay, great. Well, the data shows that 70% of employees avoid a tough conversation with their boss, their colleagues, and their direct reports. So there's an, that's an average of $7,500 per, per conversation lost in time and resources. And then you have one in five said that their inability to speak up in crucial moments actually cost their organization $50,000. So wow. I'm just adding this up. And 40% say that they wasted two weeks ruminating about a problem. So now if you add it all up, the, the data shows that U.S. employees spend about three hours a week dealing with conflict. And if you do the math, simple math, it equals $59 billion with a B in paid hours. Wow. So what we are talking about is very tangible, practical in elements that you can inject inside of the organization in your team and even for yourself, if you could transform it, that would make a big difference. And that's why we created these zones, because if we even got people talking to each other more productively, I mean, just add up the money. I, I, you left me speechless there for a minute because it's like, and here I'm a, a money guy by trade, and it's like, yes, I mean the 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 value is lost. I often I love it when you talked about that delaying decisions, right? And and there's some where I like this is a great idea. Let's delay it. It's like, wait a second, you realize each day that goes past, you never get that day back, and all of those costs that are associated with it are gone forever. It's true. And it's it's amazing how we're like, oh, we just we'll just wait till manana, right? You know, we'll just do it tomorrow. That's like tomorrow, you just once again, you just wasted a whole day, you know, of value and creation if we could have just had that conversation. So let, let's go back to this. How do you help 
people get to that, okay, we're going to help you do a tough conversation. Because it's scary on both sides today, I think. I think it's scarier than ever for a boss because they're afraid to say something wrong. Oh, yeah, it's true. Okay. And, and then on the employee side, even though they're cockier than ever, that they can get a job, you know, than ever before, they still are concerned of paying their mortgage or the rent or whatever it is. So how do you get people to say these things that have this fear of A, losing the employee and B, in the verse of getting fired, right? That they're willing to take these tough conversations. What type of skills do they need to not be afraid? Well, you have to remember a few things is that when I get in a room with people and I ask them a very basic question, you need to have a conversation with someone. So how are you actually preparing to engage in that conversation? So, so it's a, so first let's go back. First of all, I often say to people that there's, there's some questions I feel like we need to ask ourselves before we actually go ahead and engage in a tough conversation too, because I think sometimes that there's not enough, what, was, what would be the word that I would call for it? It's almost like we're leaping to something, but I don't know if we should leap to it yet. So mm. for example, I often say to people, you should ask yourself four questions. First of all, do I say anything at all? Not as a place of avoiding something, but is it, it could be, is it right? the right inflection time? Is it timing is everything right? Secondly, is there is there another way to resolve this? Because it could be, it could be sometimes that the conversation is, you know, sometimes it's it's the conversation of the conversation. And so sometimes it's not the right intervention. Third is, are there other people that need to be involved? It could be no. There's sometimes, you know, for example, I had an executive say to me the other day, what I want to do is I want to bring an executive in the room and I want her team to give her feedback live. And I said, why would you ever think that would work? And he said, well, because they're coming to me and they have issues with her and she's micromanaging and she's the head of corporate communications for a big, large multinational. And I said, well, there's no psychological safety. There's no trust. There's no respect. There's no safety. So it's a, you're, you're, you're gone before you started. The fourth thing is, and this is a really crucial question. I think it takes a lot, a lot of evolution to think of this is, am I trying to change someone else? Or do I really need to shift something in myself? Mm. And I find it takes a lot of evolution to really think about that because sometimes we just, you know, oh, if Carl, if you would just change how you're talking about that, everything would be better. Well, is it really about you or is it about me or is it about both? Because sometimes it is about both. It's not always you that has to shift the behaviors. Then I would say, let's say everything's equal and you say, yes, I, it's important to engage in the conversation. Then most time when I say to people, what's your level of preparation? Because I think, I personally think that preparation is the key. We don't talk about it often enough. We don't talk about the preparation. We don't talk about how people receive feedback enough. So number one is how you prepare for it. So oftentimes people say, well, I'm going to say, I'm going to bullet out what I'm going to say, and I'm going to address it head on. Like, okay, well, let's look at a different way to prepare that. Don't throw that out the window. But I ask them to do what I affectionately call five A's. Five A's are simple questions for you to ask yourself. One is, I'll drill through them in a second. Aware, accurate, acquire, accountability, and action. So first one is, what feelings are you aware of? Because with any conversation, there's always an emotional component. And old science used to say that the thought comes first and then the feeling. New science says the feeling comes first and then the thought. 
you feel it, then you think it, not the other way around. So you have to get out exactly what the emotions are. Second thing is accurate. What is the truth? Is it accurate or is it just your personal interpretation? Like, I think what you did was really a jerky move or you micromanaging me is really not a great way of leading. But was it micromanaging or did I keep you as my boss in the loop enough so that you wouldn't have to lean into me or lean in with me enough? Third is acquire. What learning am I meant to acquire from this situation? Anytime you find yourself in a situation, there's something to learn. And then fourth is accountability. What's your part in the situation? Now, how do you take responsibility? Now, people get real squirrely about this, especially when they think they're right. So it'll be like, there's nothing. I, I didn't do anything. And I always say to people, 1%, 1%. And you know, this is a money guy. Can you imagine 1% being off financially, right? So 1%, just 1%. If you could take responsibility, one, like a sliver, a, a half of a percent, what would that look like? And then last is action. What proactive action can you take? Now, I find it when you actually get so good at this, it could be what I call like a back of the napkin exercise. You know, you could just think of them so fast, you can rattle it off and type it in your phone, is that at the end of the day, you're you're really ready. Because the thing is that you don't know, first of all, you have to clear yourself out so that you can be ready to be engaging in the conversation to make the points that you are. Secondly, is it could be that you will be activated in the conversation, less of a chance now for your activation if you're able to get it all out. Third thing, too, is that I don't know how you're going to react. And so as much of, a, of the evenness that I can create for me, then I can handle the triggers, you know, if you're going to get triggered, how that will be and how you'll be impacted by what I'm going to share with you. So that's that's what I would say. I have to tell you that it is a game changer when I share this with people and they prepare. Some people don't ever have the conversation. Some people, it entirely changes the whole tenor and scope of it. Some people, they they were furious and then their decibel level came down dramatically. People, you, I, I find people now use it in their personal and professional lives. I had an executive, I was doing a session with the team, executive team. She's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have them do it for their personal life and then for their professional life. Mm. Like I'd never done that before. I guess it'd be great. <laughs> it was amazing. So it's a formula that you can use personally and professionally. It works. It really does. Well, what, what I really liked about you, there, there, you know, as and forgive the introvert extrovert thing, but, and I'm one of the extroverts of the world, right? So yeah. I have this problem of, I say things before I think. You know, yeah. and it just, you know, just kind of happens. And then you have the other side, introvert, where which are really much more likely to think about what they're going to say before they go out and say it, right? Yes. So, how do you help the clowns like me, the extroverts, right, who just you know throw up, you know, throw up what they're saying on a regular basis to stop, right, and pause, and just because you're able to speak fluently, so to speak, to actually stop and think, you know, how how do you help them? Because People are like, I don't have enough time to do that. But what you're saying is that the, the communication is going to be so much more effective by planning. You know, and this to me, it makes sense from a strategic planning perspective, right? Of course, we should plan on what we do. So how, how, how long, you know, once you get good at it, how long is that taking to do that little bit of preparation for each conversation? Not very long at all. I mean, what, what, I, what I like to do, this all, all depends on the situation and circumstances, right? So for example, 
sometimes you're in an emergent situation that's happening so fast, either A, you can't do this or you can't do it really fast. I mean, or you can't, or you can only give it like five minutes. And so I say in those situations, go back and redo it for you. Mm. Just as a way, sometimes it's, you know, like I said, sometimes it's, obviously I talk about it as a way to prepare, but I think it's also a good post-mortem if you don't have, if you don't have the ability to do it in the moment. The other thing too, is that you have to remember that when I give someone feedback, it will activate them. And so their ability, you know, if you just track neuroscience, right? People go into fight or flight, they go into their primitive brain when they're activated. And so they won't be able to hear you. <laughs> and so it is good if you're able to have a short conversation and revisit on another day, but that mm -hmm. you actually revisit it tomorrow. You know, you don't, <laughs> not another day, like a year from now, you revisit it tomorrow. Yep. So this way you're able, the, the other person, both of you can then be more thoughtful, especially if you didn't have as much time to do this level of preparation. But I find that even giving yourself, let's say, I mean, this is not hours. Even if you give yourself 10 minutes, let's just take that for a second. The fact that you're thinking this way shifts everything because mm. you're able to identify because you never would think about how you're really feeling and is it actually accurate? What's the facts of the situation? Is it because most of us actually facts wind up being very few in number. The interpretations and the meaning we make out of it is very large in number. The dangerous thing is when we actually make our meaning of the situation the truth and we make it our belief, and then we lead from that. Mm -hmm. And that can be very dangerous. So going back to your point about an extrovert, I'm extroverted too, is that oftentimes you have to look at the impact and the ROI. Like what's the success rate of your conversations, these kinds of conversations? You just look at the math. Are they really, are people shifting? Do you really feel you're making a great impact? No, something's got to change. You can't, Y'all, you if you're married, you know this, you can't have your spouse change. <laughs> you have to change first. And so you have to go first. So, all right. So if you're going first, well, then how do you have yourself breathe? I have an executive who literally has, he has like a coin. And on one side, one side he has listen. And then the other side it says respond. And so he has that coin turned over for listen because he speaks too much. And so he needs a visual cue to have him calm down. So this way he doesn't just interrupt everybody when they're speaking. So there are certain things I think you can do that allow you, I think you just also have to look at your success rate too. And also if you're, if you're looking for a higher rate of return, let's try, let's interject as a habit in 30 days, let's just adopt it. And then let's measure at the end of 30 days to see how effective it's been. That's oh, what I like to do for, for folks like you're talking about too. No, thank you. And I think those are great insights and great, great tips to provide. How often in these, for, forgive the, the, the crucial conversation type, you know, pun, so to speak, but when you're having these really important conversations, how often do you recommend that they follow up and write in, in an email? Because what you said is really interesting when you said is when you're in a fight or flight situation, you're not listening often, right? Mm -hmm. You just go to, oh my gosh, I didn't hear anything. And, and what I have often has found when those conversations, if there's no follow-up, literally you think you said what you said and it was received, but it wasn't received at all. 
Yeah, this is great. So I had an executive say this to me a few weeks ago. He was talking to me about that he he doesn't, he's not happy with the performance of his team. He's given them feedback. And I said, well, how do you know what they've heard? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, it's simple. How do you know what they've heard? You, you, you spend good time sharing something. They spend good time responding. And how do you know what they've actually metabolized? So he was like, I, you know, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not really sure if I have any consistent way of measuring that. So I said, what if you just ask them? Hmm. Like you have a good conversation with someone. You said, you know, hey, Carl, you and I have talked about a lot of different things. I would love for you to share with me, where are you taking away from this conversation that was valuable and meaningful for you? And let's agree on what's, what are our next steps. Hmm. And so this way I get to hear what you have to say and whether or not I really said that. <laughs> so, so sometimes, I mean, like what you're saying, it is a normal occurrence for people to be off. People have different communication styles. They have different relatability. You don't know in the conversation, was the other person thinking about chicken or fish for dinner? You know, you just don't know where people head, heads are at. I mean, I'm joking, but it's true, right? Yeah, They're true. a level of oh, being true. present, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, and especially with, you got phones going off, emails, Teams, Zoom, you know, all these distractions. And so it's really important to understand what people are actually hearing and also what they're seeing that's available for them now. And so I do agree that, but here's what I would say is I would do it in the moment in the mm -hmm. conversation. And then absolutely, either you could recap the conversation, you can have the other person recap the conversation. I would encourage you also to have next steps in terms of, hey, let's meet, depending, it's, this is all depending on context, right? Yes. So if it's, if it's, let's say a performance issue, not let's just say it's a, a way a new way and we're agreeing to operate hey this is a new agreement. why don't we revisit this in 30 days and see if this way in which we're agreeing to operate even works for us like let's try it out i had this conversation with an executive yesterday and she was saying to me that she's having difficulty with one of her peers and they've never really aligned on how they're operating and i said well you have to remember you have so she inherited a whole new role and responsibility, senior executive, same thing with her peer, but they never come together to say, let's formally just say, I mean, it's all the non-sexy stuff, right? Like, how are we going to communicate? How many meetings are we going to have? Who's coming to that? What? I only want to be involved with the big picture. Go to my, go to this person for anything else. What does big picture look like? Okay. It's these four things, you know? So it's, because she said, I only want to do big picture. I was like, well, what does that mean? I don't even understand that. Everyone has different, you know, that's the other thing. We use all this language that we think someone else understands, but I have my version, you have yours. So I said, you have to be very specific. When you say big picture, what does it mean? Does that mean key strategic decisions that involve the face of the business? You know, be very accurate and give examples. So this way, the other person can go, oh, I get it. I see it. Now I know what to come to you for. And then revisit in 30 days and say, is this even working anymore? It's not written in stone, nor does it have to be. This is a question that has a little bit to do with virtual, but this is one of the reasons I go and I like to still be on site with clients is yeah. often I don't hear an in initial facilitation and it can be a great facilitation and everyone's raving they're excited but it's the dinner after conversation or it's the hallway conversation where i actually find out some really big issue you know somebody's not getting along or some 
particular strategic initiatives failing, or, you know, they're really upset about something. And, and these soft, well, using the concept soft things, which could be big things, right? Really big issues can completely derail the ability to get something done, right? Because, yeah. and, and so you're having all these, for lack of a better term, these, these appearance, right? Of being collaborative and together in a meeting, but but people are holding a facade on that. And as I said, it's 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 in these after being present. What when you're in Zoom, you don't get that. Right? You don't get that after meeting clarification. You don't get that extra stuff unless somebody happens to call you or text you after, like, did you hear what he said or she said? <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> I, I never picked that up. So how how do you flush that out in mm -hmm. a virtual world? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always say context is decisive. You know, it's, people are in these teams that have never really been formed and they start calling themselves a team, like my team and how we're doing it, but they're actually never been set up to operate as such. And so what happens is that everyone is operating from a different context that then facilitates it going off the rails faster. Mm. So, as an example, what you're describing, we often advocate, and we've done so much of this last two years, especially, is that there are three key things that we advocate for teams to do, no matter what stage they're actually in, because most of them have never, ever done this. So number one, they do a vision narrative, which is not just a vision of, of where the de department of division is going or the business, but it, it really is an articulated picture of your future. It's like two to three paragraphs, and it really does invite into a future state that then you calibrate all your work against. That's the, that's the, that's the vital part of it is that it's used as a product, mm. you know, just like if I, you know, no one can see this, but like, if I have this little espresso cup, this espresso cup is to house a liquid beverage. <laughs> I can also use it for little bite-sized cereal, but it has a function. That's the same thing about a vision narrative is that it, its purpose is to be a signpost, a why, a North Star, and also to be a calibration for the work. Second thing you do as a leadership team is to say, okay, that's what we're up to as an as a organization or as a division. What are we committed to doing together in order to achieve that? Same thing, very aspirational, but it's about how, it's about team dynamics. And then the last part, we call it impact guide, which are all the the norms, the way in which you're going to be in order to achieve that. And that could be anything like I was mentioning before from how are we making decisions? How are we communicating? What happens if we have a disagreement? I don't know anyone who talks about what happens if, Carl, you and I disagree or we're disagreeing in the middle of the meeting. How do we debate? How do we, how do, how do we dissent an opinion that someone does, or especially if, if your supervisor or your CEO has it, and then there's a power dynamic. So I find that when those three things are in place, it's not that it's harder. It's not that the things you're talking about don't exist, but then what happens is that it becomes easier to snuff it out. And also it becomes easier to squash because what you do at the end of the day, it's not about wasn't Carl's idea crazy is that you can actually then calibrate it against an agreement or against your commitment or your vision and say, it's not an alignment. So what are we gonna to choose to do now? So it doesn't become an emotional conversation. It becomes, 
hey, it becomes more about the work. So it doesn't, it's not about stepping on each other's toes. So then you become more even about it and it also facilitates the conversations. Because what you're talking about are side conversations that shouldn't even be happening on the side anyway. Now they happen mm. always because that's just the organic way people work. But what we're talking about is how do you mitigate it? And then mm. how do you have structures in place so that if that does happen, it can be sussed out? Of the of the different six indicators that you have, what is the one that your clients struggle with the most? All of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's awesome. A variety of reasons. <laughs> Appreciate the audit, but, but like, what is what is one you think you have to work on the most? Maybe I should put it that way. I would say I would say the most fundamental one is action ready. And what I mean by that is what I was talking about before, but let me crystallize it more, is that the way we always measure performance is by actions and results. And we're so smart. We have balance sheets, we have KPIs, and we have profit and loss statements to really measure it very effectively. We have goals, we have OKRs, you know, pick your flavor of acronym, right? But what never actually gets distinguished is the observer that you are that sees the actions to take that leads to the results. Now, what happens is that that can lead to cognitive blindness or blind spots. So everyone has them because I was born with in a family structure with certain value systems and ways of being and things I was taught and schools that I went to and friends that I had and education that I got and, and uh, family structures I'm in or family structures I created when I got married, right? And then... And then if you have kids or cousins or, and if you have, <laughs> and go on and on. And then based on your culture, your ethnicity, your legacy of your upbringing, and then also your workplace experiences. So based on all of that is how you see. <laughs> and what happens is unless we actually take issue with our sight, nothing, things do not have any, any permanent level of change because what we're dealing with is the symptoms but we're not dealing with core issues mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like if you think about it i'm a photographer as a hobby and so just imagine if you and even if you're not a photographer you can just help you can understand the language if i had a telephoto lens on my camera i would see the world always as one way i'd point it at everything i'd see it real close up but then all of a sudden i put on this wide angle lens like Look, at, there's a farm here. There's fruit, vegetables. <laughs> I can farm. <laughs> this is crazy. Look at this. So there's a world that you see. It's kind of like Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. And so the one thing we do, and we've done a lot of it, is actually taking issue with how people see the world. Because mm -hmm. there's assessments and assertions. There is... I and human beings are meaning making machines. We assess everything because that's how we need to cope to live, which makes sense. The only thing with it is when we make our assessments an assertion, which is a fact, and we don't ever ground it in reality. And so then what we do otherwise is that we collude with people, right? Like I think my boss is a jerk. And then I'm gonna call Carl and be like, is he a jerk? Yeah, he's a jerk, right? And so we <laughs> We don't, ever, we don't ever examine our interpretation. So a lot of times we teach people as, as, as an example, a tool called reality check, which you say, well, what, 
when you, if you're getting activated about something, well, what are the facts of the situation? What's, how are, what's the meaning you're making it or your interpretation or your assessments? And then what's the impact if you choose to see it that way? But let's go back to what your original intention is. Okay, then now what actions do you see available to you to give yourself self-agency and your ability to self-author in a very, very different way? Because unless we deal with that, then it's, it's, it's kind of like when we work with teams, we like to work with the leader first for that same exact reason. One of the things that was catching me when you were talking about was I appreciated you bringing up of the differences in our background. You know, you 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 said you're from Brooklyn and I'm from Boston originally, and things are a little tougher there in communication than they are in San Francisco and in Portland where I live. You know, in Oregon, I mean, it, it's way softer in the West Coast. You don't even have to appreciate it, but it's a it's a place to have a same a basis of understanding to which to lean in from. Yeah, yeah, I think that's excellent. So, how do you measure success in your business? You mean for me personally or with my, or with my clients? I'm like, is that- well, How about I, with I, your clients first? How about with your clients? Yeah, that's great. So we actually developed a ready zone assessment. And so what we do is we actually, when we start with clients, we take them through the six zones and we, and we look at what the results were and the scores for that, and then remeasure back. And also we do measure according to effectiveness and at the end of the day, we also measure against profitability. I remember once I had a conversation with the CFO, you'll appreciate this. And I said, oh, the organizational work that you would like, what is the return on investment that you would like for me financially? You know, so at the end of the day, we work together for six months or 12 months. At the end of the day, what is the financial return that you would like? He said, I don't even understand the question. So <laughs> I thought, that's interesting. So it's a... <laughs> that's awesome Uh, Uh, yes you can and you can measure it in performance too so anyway that's that's basically the way that we measure the results with clients that's awesome that's awesome okay so let's obviously we i always love this because business and personal is is one you know i mean it all impacts everything that that happens and and so I love the energy. I love what have you created. You're making a significant impact in the world and with your clients. How do you, what habits do you do? I'm just curious, you know, that you do on a regular basis to keep your energy up, to keep, keep performing at such a high level. Yeah, there's several. And there's a couple that I adopted this year that are new, that are interesting. So one is I, I exercise hard four to five days a week. And so what I mean by that is I exercise for about two and a half hours for four to five days a week. And that's a combination between cardio, strength training, and yoga. Wow. And I meditate. I, you know, it's funny, I've talked about meditation for a long time, but I don't think I've been a consistent meditator. But since the beginning of June, I've been meditating every single day. And now, it has when you say that, forgive me for interrupting. How how long do you meditate? Because I, I, I'm terrible at meditation. How long? 20 minutes. And are you able to, I'm just once again, I'm awful at meditation. How do you get yourself to like be silent? I shut up. <laughs> but like without thoughts, new thoughts, you know, when things oh. are coming in your head, how do you like keep it up? What have you learned? I'm just curious, since you're relatively, you said new at, yeah. at getting better yeah. at so, this. So what I would say is, first of all, I, this at one point, because I've been toying with meditation for a long time, but then I decided that I needed to actually read about it mm-hmm. and how to meditate because I understand that the value of meditation is that it does change your brain pathways. And so I thought, okay, well, let me learn about this. And so 
I've been reading this book by a, a woman named Pema Chodron, who's a monk and she's written so many amazing books about how to meditate. And she was talking about, which I loved, is just this, the gentleness by which you treat yourself in your meditation. She actually encourages you to meditate with your eyes open, which is really interesting. Oh yeah, because I've meditated my eyes closed for so long. And there's a really interesting distinction if you do it long enough, if you close your eyes and then you open them, it's wild. But she was, she, her point, I believe, I hope I'm not gonna butcher this, is that, that you live with your eyes open. And mm. so it's how you, I find it really interesting, more interesting to meditate with your eyes open because I'm open in the day. <laughs> and so how I can handle things that are coming to me that I may be stressed out about to be able to create some equilibrium. And the other thing that I do is that I'm, I, I try to be very forgiving. So I don't try to be perfect at it. So if a thought comes, I just breathe. Sometimes it's just a jumble of thoughts for 20 minutes and I make it okay because I, I meditated and check it off the list. You know, that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I figure that at some point, you know, I will be like the Buddha. <laughs> and so, but not today. <laughs> so I do what I can to just say when thoughts come in, I just do what I can to breathe, to, to return to focusing on breathing mm -hmm. and letting it go. But I don't know if it's possible not to be thinking while you're meditating to a degree. So I haven't quite cracked that code yet, but that's, and then I meditate no, I just said that. I meditate a journal. That's what I was saying. Journal. Journal. Nice. Okay. And, and the other thing I do is I, I have a coach and so I am coached as well. And so okay. that really, I, that really helps too. And I think time with time that is really boundaries with work is very crucial. So I don't look at my phone at night. And so I have a lot of hard and fast boundaries around that. And so that really helps me decompress. I, I love all those different parts and, and the coaching part. I mean, I, I use coaches as well. And I think one of the best from one of the early people, you know, if you put 10% of your income into uh, improving yourself, right. The exponential return you end up getting out of it is extraordinary, you know, and it, it's, oh, yeah. it's just amazing when it, it, of course we're in the business, right. Of, if you may of coaching and helping to help other people out, but it's, it, it's, it's fascinating of how we can't see within ourselves, but we sometimes just need somebody to just help direct us because we're caught in our own whirlwinds all the time, right? You know, of our busyness as they talk about in 40X, you know, it's just like we're caught in our day-to-day -day and and we can't escape what's taking place. What is a book you'd recommend for audience? Yeah, one of my favorite books is Emotional Agility by Dr. Susan David. If you haven't read it, you you need to. It's an amazing book. And listen to her TED Talk and her other her other speaking engagements. She's one of the most dynamic speakers. She's thank wonderful. You. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great suggestion. I have not read that one. So thank you. Oh, you oh, love okay. it. Thank you would you. love it. Love it. Love it. Yep. Thank you. Well, Esther, it has been an amazing to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Carl. This is great. I really appreciate you and appreciate your questions. So thank you for the time today. You bet. And if they, people want to learn more about Esther, Esther, how, where can they find you? Really super simple. Just go to the website, thereadyzone.com. So T-H-E-R-E-A-D-Y-Z-O-N-E.com. Awesome. All right. To everyone else who's listening, I encourage you to go out and, and hear. I mean, she's doing amazing things out there. I love the emotional intelligence she's trying to put in the workplace to really make a difference, but it's measurable. 
for actual real, real impact and real results, which I love, of course, with my accounting background. And uh, thank you once again for what you're making a difference in the world. To you listening, wishing you the very best at measuring success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.